Let me tell you what you guys missed in that last song. So in the first service, we had, we had a lot of people in this room. We pulled out chairs. Uh, I was told that we had 32 or 34 cars parked that weren't in spaces designated. Uh, it was making a great case for why we're going to three services. But apparently someone, we had chairs all in the back there and someone got really close to the main power switch and so boom, everything went out, microphones out, uh, screen out, lights out and, uh, and everyone kept singing, which was great, which was awesome. The only downside of that was is you could hear how bad a singer you were. I mean, <laughs> whoo, it was, it was some rough sledding there. But uh, I, was, I was really proud of, of all of us kind of staying in the, in the game uh, and not, not giving up there. So it was awesome. If you just came in and walked past, we're going to take communion. So there's these cups that you can go back in the room and, and uh, get. Um, we'll do that in a little bit here. But just so you're a part of what we'll be doing is important. Before we jump into our continued, as we study the book of Job, just want to have a little recap. Last Sunday, we had trunk or treat. And God bless us with beautiful weather and some pictures here. It was amazing. We had like 40 something cars that were decorated. My first trunk or treat. Uh, and I, uh, I, I dressed up as the Vikings head coach and my wife dressed up as Adam Thielen, a former Vikings player. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. It really was. We had so many people come through. It was crazy. And um, I'm so glad that we did that. And I, I realized that... Um, Halloween or any kind of celebration of Halloween. We called it trunk or treat and we asked people to, to wear their family friendly costumes. We wanted to, to kind of keep it narrowly defined in that way. I realize that's a disputable matter. And um, there's actually a chapter in God's word, Romans chapter 14, that is there for disputable matters. I think I've told you about Isaiah 55 before. You know, my ways are not your ways, nor my thoughts, your thoughts. As high as the heaven are above, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. It's like, when you don't understand something about God, God's given us this chapter, just drop it in that bucket. And it's just like, okay, I can understand that. Well, we have Romans 14. And Romans 14 is there for when we have matters that are not essential and that we can agree to disagree on. And so Romans 14 kind of, I would say, wherever you are on that, that kind of falls into that. And, uh, and, and it turned out to be an amazement. The reason we do it is because we're kind of turning the tables a little bit on our adversary. And we know people are going to be out and about and they're going to be dressed up. And we just wanted to be out there so that they could come see us, meet us. We could show them that we're normal, that we care about them, and just might be that they would have a good experience right there in our parking lot, and they might turn to us in a time of need, in a moment of need. Uh, maybe, they, maybe you're here now, maybe they're here in the last service, because it was crazy packed last service, so don't know. But that's kind of why we, we did what we did, and we're praying that the seeds that were planted will... Um, will sprout something amazing for God's glory. But let me pray, and then we will jump into our study. God, we thank you for this place, and Lord, we thank you for technology when it works. It's awesome. Uh, and God, when it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We will sing no matter what. We will praise you no matter what. And I pray as we continue in this incredible study on something that we, we really don't want to have to face. It's something that perplexes and confuses and even chases people away from you, and that is suffering. And I pray as we continue to study a book that you've devoted exclusively to our understanding, as much as we're going to get, of that reality in our lives. Lord, I, I pray you'll speak through me in a way that will bring glory and understanding and a steadfastness as we face this 
inevitable situation in our lives. And Lord, and I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we started last week, as I said, a five-week study on the book of Job. Imagine an a entire book of the Bible. Of the 66, there's a book of the Bible that is there for us to understand and, and face suffering. It will not answer all your questions. I believe like God has done in other places in, in Scripture, we will be given enough to move forward and to redeem it. And I, I think this week, next week, and the week after, by the time we'll be done, I hope that you will find that to be the same as well. I'm curious, how do you handle suffering? What's your default position when something bad happens to you? I mean, it's probably different based on your temperament, your, your experience. But what we all have in common is I think we have two questions in common. We, we certainly are very quick to ask, why? Why me? Why them? Why? And that's, that's a very natural question to ask. The other question is, how do I get through it? Because I know it's, we all know suffering is, is a reality of this life. And the question is, how do I get through that? What's interesting is most of us think of suffering, when I, if we did a word association and I, I, I said suffering, you would probably associate it with, and I, I, I probably would do the same, at least initially in our culture, we would associate it with maybe with disease or divorce or a child that's kind of gotten away. You know, we, we, we would relate it somewhat circumstantially in that way. But those of you that ch have chosen to follow Jesus, when he, when he invited us to follow him, he said, he, he, he told everyone that was with him then and we have preserved in scripture now, if you want to follow me, there's going to be suffering. And I don't think he had in mind disease and divorce and wayward children. I mean, that just comes with the broken world that we're in. What he was saying is, if you want to follow me, if you want to stand up for me, if you want to do the things that I'm doing, live the life that I'm calling you to live, that I'm living in front of you, then suffering's going to happen. And so whether we have suffering that's in the way that we typically understand it, or as we're followers of Jesus, if we're really going to follow, and if our faith is really going to be real, if it's really going to be activated, then suffering is just a part of who we are and what we're going to be involved in, and how do we get through it. And there are certain other questions of why and how, and, and I hope to, ad to address that. Um, so let's review momentarily, because what, what I want to do today is we're going to actually, Job shifts from the scene in heaven where, if you recall, that uh, the sons of God are there, so you have the, the spiritual beings of the sons of God, you have God is there, and then you have Satan who shows up. And, and God happens to be bragging on Job, who is on the earth. He says, have you seen my man Job? There's no one like him. And Satan hears that, and Satan kind of was like, well, of course there's no one like him. Look at all that he has. And so in a way, Job kind of saunters out there, this, this, this wager, if you will. It's kind of like, well, God, you know, your words certainly are there because of what he has. You know, take those things away from him and see what you get. Kind of, let's test Job. And so God, in his sovereignty, says, okay, I will give you power to do that, but I'm going to limit your power. And he did limit his power because this wasn't two adversaries going at it, may the best man win. This was sovereign God who Satan is, uh, has to submit to. And so God gives Satan power. God doesn't roll out what he can do 
And how he can do it, he simply says, I will allow it for the purpose of testing Job's faith. And so as we understand from last week, Job's family, his, his 10 children were, were taken from him. His house was destroyed. And he had inflicted upon him uh, boils and lesions. And so his health was compromised. And if you remember, uh, his wife, who was with him, said, honey, curse God and die. Okay. Job said, no, I will not do that. And we talked about that, that initial faith that Job showed, which was a, certainly supported what God said. Look at my man, Job. Uh, I recognize that it's really, that was, that was the first quarter of the game, if you will. It was Job won, Satan zero. But there's still three more quarters to go. And what we're going to see this morning is we looked at two chapters last week. We looked at chapters one and two. Well, today we're going to take on chapters three through 31. Are you ready? That's a lot. I mean, I, as I was reading, I was like going, wow. But we're not going to take all of that on in, in uh, every verse by any stretch. We're gonna, I'm going to give you a taste, a feel for what's, what's, what's going on there. Um, because so last week, the, the, the idea of, of chapters one and two was I stated six observations of suffering. Because we're asking the question, why? We're trying to fit this idea that bad things happen to good people into our worldview. How do we do that? How do we frame that? How do we understand that? And then knowing that I'm going to be there, how do I get through that? And so I, I made six observations that came from chapters one and two that I, that I hope will serve that purpose. Well, today the, the uh, perspective changes. Now what you have today is you have Job's friends. They come to him and there's a series of messages, speeches that they give to Job. And uh, as much as you'd hope that this would be good counsel, generally speaking, it's not. Now there's some good things that they say or a good thing, and I wanna, I wanna say, well, what was the good of Job's friends they spoke into Job's life. We're, we're gonna look at that. What, what did they get wrong? We're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna look at that. And then we're gonna kind of distill down those, those chapters into some wisdom for the inevitable suffering that we will all face. How, how, do, we, how do we do that? So we're first gonna look at what they got right, Job's friends. We're gonna look at what they got wrong. And then we're gonna look at just general wisdom as we all encounter and face suffering. And as I mentioned, there's three cycles. We're not going through all three. We're just going to go through one. So that's what we're going to take on. I'm going to ask you, would you get your Bibles open uh, to your table of contents and whatever page, the book of Job, it's about a third of the way down in your Old Testament table of contents. Whatever page that corresponds to in your Bible, turn to Job and you will be chapter one. Just skip over real quickly a chapter number. We're going, to, we're going to pick it up with Job chapter three. And we're going to see Job chapter three is kind of after chapters one and two. Chapter two, if you recall, it ended where Job's friends saw him from a distance and they could see the misery. They were speechless. And it says that they sat with him for hours. I believe it might have even been days. And they said nothing. That's the important thing to remember. 
And I said last week, parenthetically, you know, sometimes we just, we, we should never underestimate our silence when we just sit with people that are struggling. We don't have to have answers. Presence means a lot. And Job's friends were there with him. And then after a, a period of time of, of the suffering that did not stop, we get to Job chapter three and we now get the second quarter of the game, if maybe not the third quarter. And we're going to see where Job is now. So if you'll follow along with me, we're gonna kind of go through and you're gonna see the cycle. You're gonna see uh, Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad and, and, and uh, these are his friends' names, which I know it seems kind of sometimes people like to name their kids like Josiah and Isaiah. Try Eliphaz, see how that sits with you, or Bildad, or Zophar. I mean, they're there, they're there for the taking. Maybe it's something unique. So with that being said, let's look at Job. Where is Job now in the game, if you will? First quarter, he was pristine. Where are we now? Chapter three, verse one. It says, after this, this being the time that he sat with his friends in silence, says, Job began to speak and cursed the day he was born. He said, may the day I was born perish and the night and the night when they said, a boy is conceived if only that day had turned to darkness. May God above not care about it or the light shine on it. May darkness and gloom reclaim it and the clouds settle over it. May an eclipse of the sun terrify it. If only darkness had taken that night away, may it not appear among the days of the year or be listed in the calendar. Well, we now know how Job feels. He hates the day that he was born. And maybe, just maybe, you've been there. Maybe the suffering that you have, have experienced, maybe the suffering you're experiencing right now, you just wish you weren't even here. You wish you hadn't even been born to endure, and you can really relate to where Job is. Well, let's go to Job's friends. Let's look at this, the, the first series of speeches, and Eliphaz steps up to the plate, and I'm just going to give you kind of a, a little snippet of each one, and what I want you to listen for is you're going to hear a familiar refrain with Job's friends. And you're gonna hear a familiar refrain as Job replies to each friend. So a friend steps up, says, Job, here's the deal. Let me help explain to you suffering. Job replies. Then the next friend steps up and says, here's, here's an explanation for suffering. And Job replies. So we're gonna go through that through each friend, but we're only gonna do one cycle. So what does Eliphaz have to say to Job's situation? We look chapter four, verses seven and eight, it says, consider who has perished when he was innocent. Where have the honest been destroyed? In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. So Eliphaz is saying to Job, Job, the issue is you. There's something in your life, there's a hidden sin, there's something that you have not confessed, and that is why God is punishing you. Well, what? might Job's response be to that? Job chapter six, verses 14 and 15. This is Job's response to Eliphaz. A despairing man should receive loyalty from his friends. It's like, uh, I need new friends, Job's saying. Even if he abandons the fear of the Almighty, my brothers are as treacherous as a wadi as seasonal streams that overflow. Job's, thanks for the help, bro. Next, what else does, as he closes out, Job's thoughts about the, the advice or the explanation he just got, verse 28 and 29 and 30 of the same chapter. But now please look at me. Would I lie to your face? Reconsider, don't be unjust. Reconsider my righteousness is still the issue. 
Is there injustice on my tongue or can my palate not taste disaster? Job says, you got it wrong, bud. I'm still standing by my righteousness. Well, now Bildad steps up to the plate in chapter eight and he says, but if you earnestly seek God and ask the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, then he will move even now on your behalf and restore the home where your righteousness dwells. To which Job replies in chapter number nine, verse 21, though I am blameless, I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. It's all the same. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is handed over to the wicked. He blindfolds its judges. If it isn't he, then who is it? Have you ever been there? Have you ever in the midst of your suffering looked and saw other people who weren't good people and you're wondering, why not them? Why me? This is exactly where Job is. This is where suffering will take you. You'll start to think like, wait a minute. God doesn't even care about the righteous. And he continues in verse 10, one through eight. He says, I am disgusted with my life. I will express my complaint and speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not declare me guilty. Note the exclamation point. I think his voice is rising. Let me know why you persecute me. It is good for you to oppress, to reject the work of your hands and favor the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as a human sees? Are your days like those of a human? Are your years like those of a man that you look for my wrongdoing and search for my sin even though you know that I am not wicked and that there is no one who can deliver from your hand? Your hands shape me and form me. Will you now turn and destroy me? He's referring to God as his enemy. That's his response to Bildad. So Zophar steps up to the plate. Again, Zophar's out there for the taking. You need a baby name, grab that one. Verse 13, as for you, if you redirect your heart and lift up your hands to him in prayer, if there's iniquity in your hands, remove it and don't allow injustice to dwell in your tents. Then you will hold your head high, free from fault. You will be firmly established and unafraid. To which Job in chapter 13 replies, yet I prefer to speak to the Almighty. I'm done talking to you guys. I, I'm, I'm over. You're not helping me. I, wanna, I want a meeting with the man. Yet I prefer to speak to the Almighty and argue my case before God. Pay close attention, this is verse 17. Pay close attention to my words. Let my de declaration ring in your ears now that I have prepared my case. I know that I am right. Can anyone indict me? If so, I will be silent and die. So that's the first cycle of speeches and there's two more like it. And that's what takes you from chapter three to chapter 31. What I wanna do is I wanna draw from that. I hope you kind of heard as the friend spoke and as Job spoke, I hope you kind of heard what was in play there. And I wanna start first with what did his friends get right? You see, we have to understand that his friends were, were coming from and appealing to Job from the belief of God's retribution. The belief that God punishes wrong and rewards right. And that the only explanation for Job's suffering is he's done something wrong. And they're saying, Job, turn, acknowledge it so that God can restore you. But what they got right, and, and see, they, they didn't know about what was going on in heaven. Job didn't know what was going on in heaven. So they didn't have the full picture. They didn't have a full understanding. 
But from their understanding, they did know that God will punish sin. And so I think that's the part they get right and that's the part that I want to address. Even though it's not in play with Job's situation really, it's worth noting. And that is when you or I, when we disregard sin of any kind, suffering is going to follow. So when you or I think that it's okay for sins of commission, which means we don't do the right things, things like sex outside of marriage or getting drunk or getting high or, or greedily spending uh, too much money on ourselves, those are sins of commission. When we let sins of commission kind of hang around, or sins of omission. We don't do the right things. We don't share our faith. We don't serve and help other people. We don't do our best to try to reconcile a relationship. When we let sins of omission and commission hang out, that's just opening the door for suffering. God's not cool with that. I read to you last week, Galatians chapter six, verse seven. It says, God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this is what he's gonna reap. So there is kind of the one plus one equals two kind of suffering. If you don't do this and you should, if you do this and you shouldn't, suffering will happen. Now to the Christian, that kind of suffering is framed with this in mind, which Job didn't have the book of Hebrews, he did, and we have many other books, and we're gonna get more into detail on the purpose of suffering next week. But Job didn't have Hebrews chapter 12, verses five and six, where it says, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. For the Christ follower who kind of lets sins of omission or commission hang around, God will discipline you. He will discipline me for the purpose of bringing us back into that right relationship. I, uh, I thought about saying it this way, God will relent when you repent. Kind of sound like Johnny Cochran there a little bit, right? If the, fit, if the glove fits, you gotta quit, right? That's kind of what God said, if you repent, God will relent. That's just how it works. And, and, and the, the, the friends were kind of right in that way. Now, what about people who are not followers of Jesus? What about those who reject God's love and reject the way to being right with God through Christ. What about those? Well, John three sixteen, which many of you are familiar with, but are you familiar with verses 17 and 18? You're gonna see, watch the game tonight, you're gonna see probably a John three sixteen sign, right? You don't see John three sixteen dash 18. But this is what Jesus said in those three verses. He says, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. So anyone who rejects Jesus has rejected the only option that's there for them to be right with God. So in their rejection, they are condemning themselves. Again, the, the friends kind of had this right. And so we see what it looks like in the life of a Christ follower. It's the disciplining love of a father. But to those who are not followers of Jesus, the suffering that comes into your life, which ultimately will culminate in that God will condemn those to hell. And I say that very carefully because the thought of it is unimaginable. 
But it is what the friends got right. Now again, it didn't apply to Job, but they didn't know that. Now, what did they get wrong? What, what, didn't, what didn't they understand? And, and we know that because when you go back into Job chapters one and two, we see there what's going on, right? And I, and I kind of alluded to that earlier. There, there, there's actually something going on in which Job's faith is being tested. And so God is allowing these things to happen. It's not the direct result of Job's sin. It is something different, something more than that. And so the friends don't realize that. And the mistake that they're making where they're getting it wrong, is they are exclusively associating suffering with God's retribution. And they're missing it. They're missing that. That there's something else going on here that we already talked about. Now here's what the point I want to make about that. The retribution principle that the, that the, that the friends are appealing to and are being kind of guided by, but it's wrong. That doesn't explain the suffering in Job's life. But here's what we say about that is we like that. We like the idea of the retribution principle. We like the idea of understanding that suffering exclusively is tied to evil actions, to doing wrong by God. When we do wrong, we, we suffer the consequences. And that's the way we want to understand suffering because then we can understand it. Then we don't have to kind of go through the mental calisthenics of trying to understand why bad things happen to good people. It's just easier to say, they messed up. So that's what's happening. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands. But I, but I wonder if there's been any knee-jerk reaction in any hearts here, and I suspect there have been, that when you see something bad happening to someone, there's that knee-jerk moment where you think, wow, I, I wonder what they did wrong. And, and we want it to be like that in a way that appeals to us because then we can understand it. And if we can understand it, if we can understand suffering, then what can we do? We can control it. I'll just live a good life. I'll just do the right things. And now suffering is an arm distance away from me and all is good. And that appeals to us. You know what else appeals to us in this retribution principle, if that really was the only way suffering happens, is we can now really see God and understand him better. Because how do we fit this idea that bad things happen to good people into our understanding of God? We, we just don't like that. We, we kind of want to make a, a, a God, if you will, of our own making. Call us Dr. Frankenstein. We, we want to make a God that we like, that we, and here, here's really what it comes down to, we want a God that we, we can tame. But, but God is not to be tamed. As much as you want to try to understand it and fit everything into it, go back to Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways, no, my thoughts are your thoughts. And, and I'll say it again, I, I say it a lot, do you really want to worship a God you can tame? Because in the midst of you trying to tame God, you're really worshiping yourself. And newsflash, you don't make a good God. I don't make a good God. Make a terrible one. But that is what's appealing to us. And, and that's where they're wrong. Now, the other way that they're wrong is it's interesting that they kind of overlook 
or they fail to consider another aspect of suffering that we have to realize and deal with. And I'm gonna, for that, I'm going to take it back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 3. The very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, this is where Adam and Eve, they have sinned against God, and they've got, brought all of humanity with them in that God curses creation. He judges creation. And in chapter 17 of Genesis chapter 3, he's speaking to Adam. He says, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor in all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. So God curses creation. He judges it. And I think with Job and his, or, well, well, actually, if you, you'll, you'll see Job starts to kind of fall in line with, with his friends. He, he's, he's trying to understand, I've not done anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? He, he's stuck by the retribution principle until we get to chapter 28. And then he starts to, there's a little, that he's starting to turn the corner a little bit. We'll get to that in a minute. But the idea is that we forget that we're in a broken world. God has judged the world, and he's judged, and we're broken people. And in order for God to love us, in order for us to be in a relationship with him, he gave us something very unique, unlike any, anything else in creation. He gave us free will. He gave us the ability to choose what we want. Now, by giving us that ability, it brings about the possibility of evil and suffering. And I think it's fair to say that because of human free will, there's been a great deal of evil and suffering in the world. Suffering that you've inflicted upon yourself and suffering you've inflicted upon others. And me as well. And so in this broken world in which people are exercising their free will, suffering happens. And will continue to happen. Because we're broken and we act in a broken way, and the world operates from brokenness. And I've used this analogy over and over, and it's, it's, it's the best for me to kind of make sense of that. We wanna hold God accountable for that. We wanna look at him because of the suffering, and say, why? But in a court of law, right, when a judge sentences a criminal to prison, for a crime that they committed. And, and we would commend the, the judge for issuing justice. You're doing the right thing. And then that criminal goes into prison and something bad happens to him. We don't hold the judge responsible for that. It makes no sense. Why? Because prison is a bad place. Bad things happen in prisons. My friends, we're in a prison. Like it or not, we're all inmates, my friends. Every single one of us has the capacity to be able and operate in our free will to bring suffering in the life of somebody else and in our own lives and in this world. And for that reason, imperfect things happen because sin exists. And his friends, for whatever reason, they, they just kind of miss that part of it. But as I said, they got some things right and they got some things wrong. We've covered those two. Let's now kind of distill down, and if you'll turn to Job chapter 28, 
let's distill down some, some wisdom that seems to be collecting some momentum in Job. You see, Job has realized through these cycles of speeches with his friends, I'm getting nowhere. I'm not understanding suffering. I'm confused because I, I know I've not done anything to deserve this. And I'm looking everywhere and I'm talking to my three best friends and I'm getting nowhere with that. Let me just say this kind of off to the side. The wisdom I think that comes from suffering, I would say that the person in my life or through their, their books and through their podcasts and who has, in 2023, who went to be with the Lord, Tim Keller, which was a painful day for me, one of my heroes. That man understood suffering in a biblical, from a biblical perspective. If you can get your hands on it, and not if, you can. He's written some very insightful, very powerful books on suffering. He had cancer early on, went into remission for many, many years. Had a very, very successful ministry in New York, amazingly successful. And then his cancer returned and he died. Great loss, great loss. But he has impacted my understanding of suffering. And so I just, I wanted to get that out there because so many good things that he has to say that I think can help us all. But with that in mind, let's see how the corner, Job is starting to turn the corner just, just a hair. He's gonna get some more help next week through Elihu. And then boom, he runs right into God. God says, you want your day in court? All right, Bubba, here we go. And, and so I'm, I'm excited to share that with you because I think it's very powerful. But look at where Job gets to after all these cycle of speeches, after his replies, and he's getting nowhere. In verse 12, he says, but where can wisdom be found? And where is understanding located? No man can know its value since it cannot be found in the land of the living. He goes, I've been looking everywhere. I've been thinking with human reason. I've been listening to my friends and I'm finding nothing. There is no wisdom to help me in the land of the living. He says, the ocean depths say, it's not in me. While the sea declares, I don't have it. Gold cannot be exchanged for it and silver cannot be weighed out for its price. And skip over to verse 20. He asks the question again, but in a little bit different way. He says, where then does wisdom come from? Initially, he says, where can wisdom be found? Now he's asking, where can wisdom be come from and where is understanding located? He goes, it's hidden from the eyes of every living thing and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, we have heard news of it with our ears, but God understands the way to wisdom and he knows its location for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When God fixed the weight of the wind and limited the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, he considered wisdom and evaluated it. He established it and examined it. And he said to mankind, the fear of the Lord is this, wisdom. And turn from evil, and to turn from evil is understanding. So you see, Job's got a little glimmer. Something's happening here. He's, he's tried everything in the land of the living. And he's realizing now that wisdom is not something that can be found. It can only be revealed. And it's been revealed in the word of God. It's been revealed by God. And what is the wisdom that God has revealed? Fear the Lord. That's the wisdom. It may not be the answer you wanted. And we'll explore this more in the coming weeks. 
But that's the answer that Job gets. Wisdom. You know, wisdom is different than understanding. It's different than knowledge, I should say. Wisdom is applying what you understand to the complexities of life. So it's not just merely knowing something, it's how do I apply what I know to the complexities of life? Is there more of a complexity in life than suffering? Maybe so, but I'll put it in the top three. And so Job is realizing that what he needs is he needs wisdom. Not that can be found in the land of the living, because it's not there. But it has been revealed. And to understand wisely suffering, there's really a question you kind of have to ask before that. To really understand suffering, you've got to go back upstream a little bit. And you've got to ask the question, what is the purpose of life? I gotta start there, because if I can understand the purpose of life, then the suffering that happens in life, I might be able to better understand that. I might be able to frame suffering if I understand really the larger question, and that is, what is my purpose in life? What's, what's the wisdom to understand my purpose in life? Well, Job says right there in verse 28, fear of the Lord. We exist, and the purpose is for us to fear God. What does it mean to fear the Lord? The fear of the Lord is, it, what is it's, it's scary trust of God in the dark. It's scary trust. That's what it means to fear the Lord. What do I mean by scary trust? Well, let me contrast it with something else. There's other things that, <clears throat> that you're probably scared of, that I'm scared of. And why, why are we scared of them? Because we're afraid that they might hurt us or might ruin us. They're gonna do something detrimental to us. But that's not what this fear is about. Scary fear in the Lord, trusting him in the dark, is realizing that God is so good that he will expose in your life and in my life the ugliness and the disgust of our sin. And that is scary. To be known that way and and, and for someone to know you in that way That, my friends, is scary. I think secondly, is to know God and his beauty and his power and his sovereignty is to yield and submit to that God and lose control, and that's another scary thing. And so when it says to fear the Lord, we're to put scary trust into God in the midst of our darkness. And when we can understand that our purpose is to trust God in the dark, Now we can maybe frame suffering a little differently. Now we can kind of understand, okay, if God allows suffering and my purpose is for me to grow in my trust of God, then just maybe suffering might help me to do that. Now it's starting to make a little more sense. It's not necessarily the answer you want, but I think there could be some traction, and I think Job is getting some traction. Um, There's a story that I... I, uh, I read a long time, I've read it a few times, and I keep seeing it popping up, and it's a great illustration to this principle. This idea that, that God's revealed in, in this wisdom that we gotta turn to him in the dark in the same way we trust him in the light, okay? And here's the reality of it is, in the midst of your suffering, and you're thinking, but God, why are you allowing this? 
I'm just going to ask you, where else can you turn? I mean, where else do you go with something that's just overwhelming you? Where, where do you go? You, you go to the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God, even though you don't fully understand it. That's the only place you can go in order to really get what you need to endure the suffering. To trust him in the way you trust him in the light. And what do you know about him in the light? You know, I mean, because the idea is God either one, doesn't love me, or he's not powerful enough to stop the suffering. But we know those are wrong because in the light, we know that God sent his son, Jesus, to die for you and to die for me after living a perfect life so that he would absorb the judgment of God so that we could be right with God. That's a loving God. We know that God has created all that we see. He, he sustains your heart. He keeps your heart pumping and your lungs breathing. I'm telling you, that's a pretty powerful God. David Blaine can't do that. Street magic guys, anybody know David Blaine? One of my favorite things to do is to come up with obscure names so my wife after the service, on, she goes, why did you say that? No one knows that. Well, just because I wanted to say it. But, um, but here's the story that I think maybe brings a little bit of imagery to what Job doesn't understand because he doesn't have the other books of the Bible and we do. But even having the other books of the Bible, we don't fully understand it. Elizabeth Elliot, some of you might know that name. She was married to Jim Elliot of the End of the Spear movie, Jim Elliot, the missionary who went over into um, the Amazon and was trying to reach a people group in the Amazon. Think about this, trying to reach a people group in the Amazon with the hope, the truth, the life and love of Jesus. And was slowly trying to, you know, circling in a plane, dropping down these you know, supplies and that kind of stuff and just slowly trying to get closer and closer. And he got close enough that a spear was thrown and went right through him and killed him. And Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, continued this amazing ministry. And she talks about a story when she was actually over in a farm in northern Wales. And she was watching this amazing herding of sheep and rams. And there was a dog that would kind of take care of the sheep and would nip at their feet and, get, and kind of move them in the direction of these vats. They were trying to get them into these vats where there was an antiseptic there. And they were dunking these sheep in the vats to, to protect them from the insects and, and, and from the disease that could get in through the bites of insects. And, so the, and the, the, the rancher was on his horse because he was dealing with the rams and they weren't quite as uh, cooperative. But he was moving them with the horse into the same vat. And the rams fought harder than the sheep. And he said, there, uh, Elizabeth Ellis said that at times, the rancher would grab the ram, stick its head underwater by the horns, hold him underwater for a few seconds, and let him up. And she said as she was watching this, this is great insight. She said, if only the rancher could talk to the sheep. Say, here's why I'm doing this. But he doesn't speak sheep. And all the sheep could do was just trust the one that had been shepherding them for all these years that they were alive, providing <clears throat> excuse me, food for them and, 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 and a pasture for them. That's all they could do because they don't talk sheep. And so in a way, that's kind of like, like, like God is saying, you don't understand what I'm doing. And sometimes I'm probably the one he's got to take and hold under for a really long time. Just my suffering help us in the trusting. I, I think it just might do that. Trusting God in the dark is the only way, my friends, it's the only way that we can redeem suffering at all and that we can 
work it for our good. Because there's two things that are gonna happen with suffering. <clears throat> two things happen in suffering. There's pain and there's shock. Pain doesn't like shipwreck us. It's hard, but it doesn't shipwreck us. What shipwrecks us is shock. God, why are you doing this? I, I did this, I did that, and, and, and that just, if you don't have the wisdom of God that's not found in the land of the living, it is revealed in the word of God. And Job didn't have what we have, and that is Christ suffering on a cross that we, they didn't understand then, but we understand now that in that suffering, something great, amazing was happening. And if we don't have that, then the shock will shipwreck you and suffering will win. And we're seeing in Job, we're seeing a little bit of understanding, a little bit of traction that we'll finish out in the next couple weeks. So here's my challenge for you this week, is to, if there's a sin in your life of omission or commission that you've just been kind of, you know, just not really trying to choke it out and, and like kill it, you just let it hang around, confess it. Confess that sin of omission or commission. And, and just say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm gonna change my behavior, I'm gonna change the way I think about it, I'm, I'm gonna repent, okay? Because you're shutting the door of suffering in one sense when you do that. Secondly, is to strengthen your connection with Christ. You, you need that strong connection with Christ in preparation for when suffering comes, you, you can absorb the pain, but you can absorb the shock as well because of that strength that you have in your relationship with Christ. And that is how we get through, all right? More to come, enough for now. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Lord, I thank you for the ways you've opened up in my own heart and in my own head, suffering and, and its place in my life. I pray you do the same and have done the same in the lives of those who are here this morning, Lord. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. What we're gonna do now is you've got your cups, right? And, and if you don't, then you can get them at the back of the room. But um, we're, we're going to remember Christ's sacrifice. And it's, it's in the remembering of his sacrifice that we realize that we've been forgiven and we've give, been given the ability to understand and discern this wisdom that's not in the land of the living, but it's revealed in how we can apply it into life's complexities. So we're gonna be mindful that that came at a great price to God, the Father, and Jesus, his Son. So I'm gonna ask you to peel off that first layer, and we're gonna get to the bread. And I want us just to kinda of hold that there for a minute and realize that in this bread, that God, who is spirit, came down in flesh and bone. And he lived a perfect life. And then he absorbed the judgment of God the condemnation he absorbed for you and for me. And then God raised him three days later to say, that satisfies my holiness. This is the guy. And so when we take this bread right now, we are mindful that Jesus' body was broken for you, that, he, that a human sacrifice was what was needed. So let's take this bread mindful of the forgiveness we have for the crucifixion of Christ.
And secondly, you'll peel back that second layer and we get to the juice. Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper and he said, as often as you do it, there was no interval that he gave. But he took the cup of wine. He said, this is my blood. He says, take it. He says, as often as you take this, do it in remembrance of me. <clears throat> and the idea was, he said, they knew that in the Old Testament, they would bring their sacrifices annually of an animal that would be sacrificed and the blood would be shed and that that blood was to cover the sin of the family for the whole year. But then they'd have to do it year after year. But Jesus came. He said, this is it. I'm the one and only sacrifice. And when Jesus was on the cross, and, and the last words were, it is finished. Jesus did everything that had to be done for our sins to be forgiven, short of our putting our faith and trust in him. So let's take this juice, mindful that his blood was shed, so your sins could be forgiven, and mine could be forgiven for past, present, and future. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we need to not beat ourselves up, to not let guilt and shame rule the day. But Father, Jesus has won the day, he's won the year, he's won eternity. And we thank you, and we praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.